Welcome back. We're going to be learning this morning, first of all, on uh, this shear is sponsored by David and Irene Foyer in honor of the wedding today of um, Esther Schnitzer to Anshul Weiss, a very special wedding. Nesha Shem, it should be a wedding which brings with it a tremendous simcha, tremendous gesund for the entire mishpacha for many, many years to come. Thank you, David, for, for uh, this, is, this is David's sister who's, uh, who's getting married this morning. And Anshul, of course, is a very special member of our shul. This is a very, very beautiful and unique simcha. We are going to be learning today on the topic. We're going back to introductions for a moment. We're at the beginning of the Torah, so we have the opportunity of learning about introductions. And we're going to learn today the introduction of the Ibn Ezra to the Torah. The Ibn Ezra is one of the most fascinating, colorful characters we have the opportunity of exploring together. We've heard ideas from him here, there, everywhere. But to really understand who the Ibn Ezra is, we really need to see what he says about himself. It's very hard. He's a very complex individual. I, I actually just put into the notes two sets of biographies. One's from the Jewish, Jewish Virtual Library, one is from the, the uh, Britannica Encyclopedia. Just a very fascinating person. He was known in the world as well. He was a very worldly individual. He was a person of, uh, of acclaim. He was a philosopher. He was involved with mathematics, astronomy. A, uh, a very fascinating person. He lived a very difficult life. In fact, according to some accounts, he lost three children, one of his sons converted to Islam, and then he went into a self-proclaimed exile where he traveled Europe. Even though he was born in Spain, he went across Europe, and he wrote he, it's a lot of very fascinating things. In the biographies, he introduced the decimal system um, the, um, to, uh, to a lot of the, Jew, the, the Jewish community in Italy when he arrived there. So at this point in time, the world of Islam was a, lot, a little more academically developed than the world of, Christi of Christianity. Fascinating enough, and he brought with it some of the, some of the interest, interesting mathematical advances which the, we'll call it European Christian world, he had not yet accessed. Very, very fascinating individual on all sides. He was a poet. In fact, there are a number of Zmirois which are attributed to him. Anybody familiar with some of them? He usually puts his name in the acrostic. So one is, on Friday nights, the next time the opportunity of doing this is Tzomo Lechonashi, right? Is, uh, is... Um, that is the Ibn Ezra. And if you look at the acrostic, it says Avram ben, uh, Avram ben Ezra. Um, it's a fascinating discussion as to what the last stanza is. Was it an iron? Was it a hay? Uh, sorry, was, was it an aleph? Was it a, a hay? Very interesting discussion. There's two, there's two permutations of that. He was a poet. He was a very, very interesting individual. Towards the end of his life, he wrote his Pirush on the Torah, his explanation of the Torah. He has a, a Pirush on a number of the Nevi'im and Ksuvim as well. And um, he, he, was, he was a very, very famous person. In fact, so famous is he that um, Robert Browning, much later on, wrote a poem called Rabbi Ben Ezra. Very interestingly enough. Um, and in this poem, it's a very long poem, um, Robert Browning, who was uh, one of the great poets in England at the time, married to Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who was also a poet. Um, and uh, he, in, this, in, in this poem, he, he explores the philosophy of youth and youthfulness, and just to quote one paragraph I did not put into the notes today, but he, he, des he, he describes the following, it is not for such hopes and fears and nulling youth's brief years, years do I remonstrate folly wide the mark, rather I prize the doubt, locans exist without, finished and, fi uh, finished and finite clods untroubled by a spark. When he's talking about the idea of youthfulness and being able to succeed in life when ultimately <coughs> we're all clods, we're so to speak, we're all, we're all human you know, hewn rock, clods of dirt, with uh, is there really a spark there? 
a lot of very interesting philosophical wonderings put in the name of the Ibn Ezra um, and using a, a historical character as the, as, the, as the foundation for his discussion. Fascinating, fascinating individual. We've all learned little pieces of Ibn Ezra here and there. We've heard his ideas, but very, very few people have actually taken the chance to learn his introduction. And he, he really is a tightrope walker. He balances a lot of very different ideas, and we'll see why how, and how difficult it really is to, to balance these things. Thank you so much. Just a couple of them as well. Um, we, see, we, we see that he balances a lot, lot of ideas. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at his introduction, and along with it we'll see perhaps some examples of how he operates. He's going to, his introduction is very simple. His introduction is essentially five steps, and he describes them. These are five approaches to learning of Torah, and he is going to he is going to reject the first four, and he is going to adopt the fifth. That's that's his, that's the pattern over here. So what we're going to do is we're going to explore those first four, and see why he rejects them, and perhaps take a look at some examples in his parish on the Torah where he where he rejects them, just to see how or what he's doing over here. Um, it is interesting to note as well, of course, he starts off with a poem. If you take a look in, when we move to the actual introduction itself, which is, um, this is past all the notes, it's uh, Hagdomas, Rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra. And, of course, the first part is a, a poem. And you'll notice that as we go through our introduction together, he rhymes the entire introduction, which is pretty remarkable considering the amount of content that he puts into here. And the sophistication of the arguments that he's about to make, he still puts it in rhyme. Okay, there's a meter to it, you can feel it, and I'm not going to always succeed at getting it right, but as we go, we should always feel da 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 Right, there's going to be this, there's going to be this, this, this meter, which moves all the way throughout his introduction. Very fascinating. Let's, let's take a look at the beginning. So he says, as in, as in his introductory remark, after the embolded area, which is the poem, about when he asks Hashem, for the, the help in being able to do this. And then he says, Neum Avram Hasfardi Hanizkar. This is the speech of Avram Hasfardi. What does Hasfardi mean in this context? Spanish. Spanish, right? There's five ways of looking at the Torah. And now, now, now he starts. The first, we're not going to read all of this. We're going to do the, the essential argument, <coughs> perhaps an example in each case. Here's the first, the first case. The first way is long and wide. You feel that you felt the meter there, right? And 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 so from some of our generation, it is lofty. So he says, if you're going to assume now, this thing about the imagery as truth as a point in the middle of the circle. Then he says, this is a really essentially the longer perimeter circle around that point. Okay, so I, I, I try to draw pictures for each of these in, in stages of introduction, just as I think uh, what, what he means. So you have the Nakuda is the truth in the middle, and now you have this larger circle around it, which is this way of to, uh, this Pirush. And then what he says is, um, if you think about it, um, in, this, in, this, in this image, the, the perimeter circle never really gets close to the center, if you think about it. It's not a spiral, it's a circle. And so it's always at a perpetual radius from the center, and it never really gets any closer or any further. That's this type of explaining the Torah. What does he mean? So here he goes. 
There are many great people who took the, adopted this approach, and they are many of the leaders of the yeshivas in the Malchus Yishmaelim, which means what? Right, means to say many of the, the leading Jewish figures in the world of Islam have adopted this approach. Okay, so he is, a, he is also blessed to be an individual who's been able to travel. At this point in time, he's exiled. He's moving through Europe. He's seeing what the Jews under Christianity and, and the yeshiva system there contrasted to those under Islam. So this is a comment he can make. And then he says, Karav Yitzchak he quotes a certain Rabbi Yitzchak who <coughs> authored two entire books just on the first chapter of Bereshis. What is the topic of it? And he, he wasn't quite finished even yet. So what is he talking about in these books? What's, what's this, bo- what's this, this uh, approach doing? On a pasuk talking about light and darkness on the first day, he talks about the ideas of emunas ha'or va'choshech. If you take a look at footnote 14, he explains the, the explanation of this is quite clear. He says, Sotom in a v'davar al-torasom ha'or va'choshech. He talks about the concepts of light and dark. He talks about the physics of light and dark. Meaning to say, the Torah in a certain sense is the diving board to explore the natural world, so to speak. The natural histories, the natural physics of the time. Skipping a line to the next um, comma. He accuses Rav Sajagon, one of his predecessors, of being one of these people who went in this direction. He says, When Hashem says, Let there be, let there be luminaries, which is on day four, he starts talking about, you know, the whole celestial sphere and, and you know, astronomy and and the gravitational pull and all those kind of things. And he says, 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 says in Ezra, he quotes Rabbi Shmuel Achofni, another person as well. And then he says the following. We're going down to the fourth last line. There's a comma towards the end of the line. He says, he says, How much um, positivity or benefit have we got from this, this way? The only benefit is length. <laughs> Meaning to say, there's no value in this explanation of the Torah. Sort of like, you know, sucking out of their thumb ideas about dreams. If you want to learn natural history, go to the encyclopedia. Don't go to the Torah. That says, that says the Ibn Ezra. Meaning, don't use the Torah as a platform for saying it's a book of natural history. And we could, by the way, we could go into further sciences if we wanted to be a little more um, frank. We could say that the Torah is not, and there could be a whole list of things. It could, not, it could be not a history book, not a scientific textbook, right? Not an uh, anthropological development. Meaning to say the Torah is not describing those things. There's other people who wrote about those. But the Torah can't simply be those. It may also refer to those, but it can't be the book about those. And one of the reasons which is obvious that this is true, the Ibn Ezra is absolutely correct over here, is... Because the Torah, if the Torah were a history book, it's missing a whole lot. If the Torah were a science book, it's missing a whole lot. Right? The Torah is not clearly focusing on these things. It happens to mention physics. It happens to mention astronomy. It happens to mention history as it relates to its more predominant mission, which is, what is the Torah's mission more? 
Because there's mitzvahs in this history, there's stories, and there's commandments. How, how do we put that all together? Morality, but then it just becomes a morality textbook. There's other people who write about morality. So it's not about morality because if it's about morality, then why do I need all these stories? So it's interesting. There's a lot of ways of describing this. One way, the way Rabbi Foreman describes it, he calls it a guidebook. I mean, you say it's telling us how to lead our lives. It's a hoira. A Torah is a teaching, right? So it's teaching us how to best live our lives as opposed to telling us the history of something or telling us the morals of something or telling us the natural history of something or anthropological development of something. So the Ibn Ezra says, is don't, spend, don't try to insert into the Torah your, so to speak, your thesis and then say this is what the Torah was talking about and this is what the Torah wanted to convey to us. So that's number one. Therefore, he calls this approach this very long circle which is always equidistant from the center and you're never really approaching it because you never really understood the Torah in its own terms. You're taking the Torah from external terms. That's, so that's the first explanation that the Ibn Ezra notes, and he rejects it. And by the way, he is entitled to be talking about this because he was himself a philosopher. He was himself an astronomer. It's not because he doesn't know about this that he's saying this. He's just saying, I've learned that, but that's not this. Right? They have to corroborate, but this is, this is simply not what the, what the Torah is talking about. Uh, um, so this is, the, this, is, this is essentially number one that the Ibn Ezra diffuses. Now, he enters into a much more vociferous and, and a more dangerous approach, which he now rejects. And he says, um, oh, by the way, just, uh, there is a, uh, one, one last interesting just point on this as well, is in, in, in talking about this approach, he talked about how it's above the heads of most of the people of the generation. Niskava, it's above the heads of the, of the Hamonam. This Ibn Ezra is, says many times, as an example, when, the, when there's a very, very important question which is asked by the Mephoshim in the Torah, specifically in Parashat B'chol Koisai, which is why the world to come is not included in the Torah. The Torah never says, work now so you get an illustrious world to come. It never talks about the hereafter. It always talks about the here. And there's a, it's a big question because if that's part of the Torah's mission and we know that we're going to a world of hereafter, then surely the Torah should, should tell it to us, you know, that it's part of the game plan. And the, what, the reason that Ibn Ezra there, the, in Parshas B'chol Kais, at the end of the first Aliyah, d- explains that the Torah omits all of our boys, he says, because the Torah has to be accessible to every person. The Torah needs to be understood to every person. And Olam Abba is, it's understood, the Echad Minei Elef, to only one in a thousand people. It's so spiritual, it's so lofty, that the Torah, the Torah would not couch in its explicit terms something which is not accessible to everybody. Which is sort of also in the, in the direction of his rejection of this first approach, which is, is that the Torah can't be something which only somebody li- living at the very top, you know, story of the ivory tower, sitting there on their philosopher's chair, is talking about. That's not what the Torah was meant for. The Torah is meant to speak to every individual. It has to have le- a level of understanding on every, to, to every person and every person to every age. That's number one. Number two, he says, um, this is the top of the next page, on page Vav, he says, Derech Habez, he says, now, confused people chose this approach. He says, And if they are Jews, and if they are the Jews who believe they have arrived at the point itself in the center of the circle, they're just, they don't even know where it belongs. They're not even on the right map. What, what's he referring to? And this is the, the way of the Sadducees. He quotes contemporaries who've written books on this. And they're no longer called Tzidokim. Does anyone know what they called at this stage in the game in Jewish history? 
Karaites. Good. So what happens is, is that during the time of the second base of the Mikdash, there were the literalists. These are the people who basically read the Torah, and they said, and they said, you know, what we see is what we get, and there's no Chazal, and we, we, the Gomorrah is full of discussions with the Sadducees. And they, they essentially come out with their own Torah. It's a sectarian group, which really, is in a certain sense, abrogates Judaism. And the Pharisees, the Purushim, which is us, are the ones who had adherence to the Direi Chazal. And we, we, we hear about this a lot in, in, in the Gomorrah and the Mishnah. However, it's interesting that afterwards, there is a movement in the Middle East called the Karaites. And this is a very uh, difficult group, which is, has similar principles, which is what the Rishonim are dealing with. They follow the suit, and he quotes some of, their, some of them over here, and you can see in the footnotes that they suggest who these individuals might in fact be. min and any, any heretic who doesn't believe in those who transfer the religion, which refers to Chazal, which refers to our sages, and they turn to the left or the right. What is he referring to? The Torah says, listen to what your sages tell you. Right, don't turn right or left. So what he says? So he says, these are the people who are turning right and left. Right? So he's clearly, these are the people who have left the road. He says, they will, they will interpret the psukim however they want. They, they, they suck it out of thin air is where they're getting it from. Even in the realm, what's of mitzvah sukhukim? What's mitzvah sukhukim? Not, not just Torah, but mitzvah sukhukim means the law of Torah. We're going to see this is important. Later on, the Ibn Ezra is going to differentiate between law and philosophy. So he says, even in the realm of law, they simply they suck it out of thin air. And therefore, they're going to, they're going to they, they, their, their interpretation is incorrect linguistically in the language of Hebrew, and therefore they arrive at the wrong conclusions. And you cannot rely on them because they keep turning hither and thither. They are no longer on the straight and narrow. And he says, you cannot open the Torah Shebiqsav and say that everything is included in it. It's not possible. So he gives an example. We're not going to go through it over here. But he says, I'll give you an example of what these people are saying. He says, what about dating, timing of the Torah? She says, you know, this is very important for us because this could import, have import for Yom Kippur and Pesach, both of which if we, if we play around with, we could be over Isure Kores. If you're eating bread on, um, on Pesach, that's an Isure Kores. If a person's eating on Yom Kippur, not warranted, that is an Isure Kores. These are very serious crimes. And these are dependent on the calendar. And he goes on to explain that because of a misinterpretation in Bereshus of Ayula, Isos, and the Moadim, that they understood that it means that the moon is the only, the only, I will call it a concept or idea, which dictates the calendar, they arrive at the wrong idea. There's different levels of what's called molad, when the moon is born, so to speak. And how you interpret that, molad and he goes through astronomy to explain that these people, in a misinterpretation of the Apostle Gibberatius, arrive at the new month at the wrong time, which could therefore mean a day off, and over a few months could mean a few days off, and that means to say you're essentially down the, you're, you're already been sold down the river. And therefore, he goes on to say, as an, ex- as an example, he says, here we have, he says, it's clear that you need to have Torah Shabbat Al-Peh in order to understand the Torah Shabbat Al-Peh. You can't simply be, be sitting there and in trying to interpret it out of, th- um, out of your own mind. 
And as an example, we take a quick look over the top of the next page. It says, V'gam, I put, I just, I put this underlined, he says, V'gam im hoyu kol eile mefurashim, oi davor kosher enenu mefurash batoras moshe lodas kamachachachachachachana. So let's say that we knew that, the, that, the, that we started the, the, new year, the new month precisely. He says, well, the Torah never tells us how many months there are in the year. The Torah simply doesn't tell us that. V'im hi aviv nismecha ha'hu mechitimu sa'arim. And now, yes, we need to keep Pesach in the spring. What spring exactly? Spring, the early spring for the barley season, or spring for the wheat season? The Torah says, Shomor al-Chodesh Aviv, right? We have to guard the month of spring, but what spring are we talking about? We don't know. He says, Umasayu v'kash v'anu ha'asarim. He says, V'im ha'asar shanas b'tzoris b'eretz Yisrael misaviv, v'inei ein zera, av ki aviv, ha'nigba shana pshuta u'muberes. So how do we know when to add an extra month? When at which point in time do we do, do we add the extra months to the year? And there would never be a chag called atzeres because you're counting from which day of the week or is Sunday because this is mimachras Shabbos. So the point you're saying is that if all you had was the Torah and then there's no Torah Shabbat here to explain it, it's it's basically like receiving a complex invention without the instruction manual, right? So yes, you could put your finger into that hole and see what happens, right? But but in the end of the day. You know, you might lose it, because <laughs> that might be the sharpener, right? So we do, if you don't understand what's going on, you're going to misuse this item. He says, All these ideas require tradition, as Tevio would say, right? <laughs> tradition, this is what we need. He didn't quite know, he wasn't quite referring to that, he wasn't quite on the level to appreciate this. Nonetheless, but the, this is what the Ibn Ezra is saying. He says, Omrim, mi'idim al levona the people of the Mishnah, the sage of the Mishnah, told us when is the moon to be seen. Based in, based in, have to adjudicate when it is, based on the principles. And there's many considerations of the community as to when they add an extra month. Now he says a very interesting question. Why is it that the Torah spends so long explaining the laws of Tzoras, of leprosy, when it applies to specific individuals here and there? And then when it comes to Kiddush HaKodesh, which relates to every single Jew, when every single festival, when every single Rosh Chodesh and, and Mitzvah applies, that's in the, the cycle of the year, very, very little said. Why is that? We have to look here and there for hints. He says, Why is it so seemingly, so to speak, so naive, so, so simple without the, without the complexity? This is the science, says the Ibn Ezra. Moshe obviously depended upon there being a oral Torah to the written Torah. It must be, when you read the Torah, you have to start with one of the starting principles and foundational, the foundational beliefs, is that this Torah cannot be read alone, simply as the book, and you can interpret it as you want. You need to go into it with the interpretations of Chazal. This is, this is very, very clear to him. It is interesting um, that the examples, all the examples he gives are halachic, just worthwhile noticing. All the examples of halachic, when we keep the season, when we have the shana, all these examples. I will give you an example just of, of, of where, he, uh, where, he, where he relates to such individuals. This is a very fascinating example. Take a look back on 
is actually this, these pages are actually numbered now, page 304, just reverse a few pages. He has an example where he, he relates to these the individuals in this group as an example. So he, it's about, it's, a, it's in Parshas Yisro, it's talking about the Matan Torah is about to happen, and Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu in Source 1, you should make a fence around the people, saying, Don't go up on the mountain when Sinai is, in, in, when Sinai is happening, when the Torah giving is, Matan Torah is happening, don't ascend on the, upon the mountain. And then a few psukim later, Kodesh Baruch Hu reaffirms that, and he says, and he says make sure nobody's going, going up the mountain. Moshe Rabbeinu assures Hashem and says, Nobody can go up because Hashem already circumscribed the mountain. It cannot be ascended. So you'll notice, by the way, that there's a contradiction within these two psukim in the same parak. And what's the contradiction? Who's making the that, that, that could be Moshe Rabbeinu, could be the mystery, but there's more than that. Most people have just have missed it. No, the one is when he's doing it. The other one is he's already done it. But but but, but no. But let's, let's, what's the actual difference? Who is he bounding? Is he bounding the mountain or the people? In pasuk yud beis, it's sigbaltes am saviv lemar, bound so to speak, circumscribe the people. And in twenty three in chav gimel, when Moshe Rabbeinu is describing that he did this, he says sigbaltes har the mountain. So he quotes Ibn Ezra, an individual over here, he says the following in Source 3. I'm explaining this very explicitly. He's a little bit more, he says before this. He quotes an individual, he, he labels the, the, the crazy man. Right, he actually quotes him a number of other times in Tanakh. He says, Because there's some crazy guy who says, Moshe Rabbeinu made a mistake. Right, Moshe Rabbeinu really meant to say, but he just, he slipped up. He said, So this fellow whipped out his quill, <laughs> made an adjustment, put an asterisk over there. Moshe Rabbeinu really meant to say, um, Because clearly there's a contradiction. Says the Ibn Ezra, he says, who, who gave you the right? Take the quill away from the man. Right, this, you don't have the right, he calls in this crazy man. The Ibn Ezra, very, very many times, will be the one who's going to be the knight in shining armor to, to defend the Torah against people who think they have the right to interpret and reinterpret the Torah. You don't have the right to. You don't have the license. This is no poetic license over here to start playing around with the Torah. There's a very specific reason why the Torah said, Amen Har. It's fascinating principle as to what this really means. Why the Torah shifted the description. But don't ever amend the Torah. Don't ever say the Torah meant something that it didn't really quite, quite mean. This is an example of the people in group two um, as well. Um, now, let's go a little further into group three. It gets, it, gets, it gets more interesting as we go further. This group over here, very interesting. Very interesting group. He says, um, um, oh, okay. Yeah, in, 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 this is on page Ches. He says, Aderech ha-gimel derech choshech so we've, we've done the first group, which is the, we'll call it the natural philosophers. The second group are these literalists um, who, so to speak, you know, st- get stuck and misinterpret the language and don't understand what's going on. The Karat group and sometimes Jews themselves. Um, and then the third group, he says, is a dark and, and uh, cloudy group. Who, and if you can imagine them, they're not even in the circle. <laughs> they, 
They're not even in the, peri- the, in the, in the circumference of the circle. They interpret ideas, metaphors from everything. He says, The Torah really is a book of riddles. It's not talking that there's nothing literal at all. This is a mirror opposite of the previous group. But it says, I'm not going to spend too long discussing them. Because they're simply a wayward people. So he says these people are sitting here and essentially every time they look at something they say no, it, it must be something else. It refers to a, a broader principle. He says the following If they can't understand something based on logic then they say it must be a parable. It must be a metaphor for something else. Ibn Ezra retorts and he says, the Torah must be understood based on the logic of human beings. That's what it was given to. The malach, so to speak, the, the, the agent between the person and his creator is his mind. That's the only way we can access the Creator. And therefore, if you have something you don't understand, we need to spend more time trying to get there because that's the Word of God, which is His way of relating to us. And we should, we should spend time like that rather than groping around a wall like a blind person. And pretending that, there's this, that what we're looking at is there's another alternative. So he goes on to say, uh, and he doesn't give uh, that many specific examples, but it sounds like this is the group of people who will read everything and say everything is a metaphor. The Torah, the Torah really never meant anything literally. It's ideas, all ideas, lofty ideas. And the Ibn Ezra says, I'm sorry, the Torah is meant to be understood and amalgamated and interpreted by the human mind. And therefore, we have to assume that. That's the basic assumption. This comes back again to the example I gave, which is actually more fitting to this case, about the, the, about Olam Abba. Where Ibn Ezra says, every human being has to have access to the Torah in some way or another. We should have, we should have the strength in our own character to open the Torah and realize that through our mind is the way we can connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Of course, unfettered mind, so to speak, unfettered creativity leads to the previous group, which is, they say anything. But not having any mind in, in it leads to this group where nothing, everything is, is, is fluid. There's no, there's no real direction. Very complicated uh, um, group. And he says this is like a dot outside of the circle. Now it comes to the fourth approach. And this approach is actually as opposed to the previous three, which are generally speaking, he views completely, completely distant from truth. Now the fourth and fifth are a lot closer. And the fourth are going to be some ideas which we perhaps are more familiar with. Here's how it goes. Is The fourth world group is a little closer to the inner, inner point in the circle. It says, And many people chased after it. Um, this is the way of the sages in... What, what lands is he referring to? Right, so I think he's referring to the Jews in Europe right now, right? So the, 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 the Jewish interpreters in Europe. They don't spend too much time 
looking at the, Mos- the, 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 at the, at the scales. What's he referring to? In the footnote in 99, it says, Mosnei Lashon HaKodesh. They don't spend so much time looking very carefully at the building, the building blocks of Hebrew. So they, they, they can't take generalities. He says, Rakis al derech drash or They adopt the way of drash, which is, well, how would you translate that? Exegesis. Exegesis, or, or in, you will call it, you know, the midrashic interpretations, the, 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 the derivations of the text. He says, look, the Medrash is already wrote, written, so why are you repeating it? Meaning, how could the sum total of your Pirush simply be quoting Midrashic material if it's already written? Right? There needs to be something more. He says, he says, he says, And there are many, there are many ones which, are, which in fact are contradictory of one another, and it's not explicit. He gives an example. Kidrash. says there are those who say, there's a Midrash which says, more specifically, that the Torah preceded this world 2,000 years. This is clearly over here. Now he goes into the world of, this is an idea, as opposed to group three. This is an idea. This Midrash is an idea. Not the Torah is an idea. But this Midrash is clearly a metaphor. He says, but there are other people who say, no, it, 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 that's what it means. There's 2,000 years, literally, before the, before the Torah, and the clock was ticking, and then the Torah was there. He says, wait a second. Time is measured based on the, on, on the orbits of various celestial bodies. And if there ain't no celestial bodies, then there's no day. And if there's no day, there's no two days. If there's no two days, there's no month. If there's no month, there's no year. So how are 2,000 years before the Torah? I mean, he has a lot of the logical breakdown that even as we're saying. It doesn't make sense. How can you even measure time before time is created? Because time was part of the creation. So you can't tell me the Torah was created 2,000 years before creation and that being a literal idea. He says, <laughs> He says, you're going to say, well, always before the world was created. He says, well, you're, not get, you're going to be embarrassed because you're never going to arrive there because you're trying to explain nothingness with somethingness. And something doesn't work in the case of nothingness. So even as we don't have the faculty to be able to interpret, we don't have the, a- the ability to be able to access this. Simply not possible, says, uh, says Ibn Ezra. So what, is, what does this group do? Just, like, just to su- summarize quickly what, what this group does. They see that the only interpretation of the Torah is through the Midrashic text. And they take the Midrashic texts as... Literal. That's the only interpretation. Says Ibn Ezra, two fallacies. Fallacy number one is that it doesn't always work with the words. And number two, Lashon HaKodesh was nine, the, the, what he calls the scales of the text. And number two is that there's a logical breakdown. It doesn't make sense in a lot of cases how to, how to interpret this. Therefore, he says you can't necessarily adopt it. He says, uh, and uh, you take a look. Oh, I, I actually, oh, such a pity. I, it looks like. Page tests to not come out of the copies. I really apologize, which is a, a pity because at the very bottom of page test, he goes on to an example and he says, let me give you an example. And he says, Beratius. And he says, well, let me tell you what, all, all these, all the drush. And he goes, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And he says, you know, he, 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 he says, you know, Beratius, because the world is created 
on top of the Leviathan. Then Bereshis, the world was created in order to fear me. That's why it's Bereshis um, um, Then the world was created because of Bikurim, Bereshis, which Rashi already quotes. And then he says, why is it a base of the beginning? Because it's to show that Hashem is one and the world is multiplicity. Then why is it a base of the beginning? Because, and he goes through every single, he goes, Medrash after Medrash after Medrash after Medrash. And, um, he says, and then, he, and, then he, and then at the top of the next page, we're going to back to Yud now, where he carries on going. He says, Dorash Bereshis She Milos Shakol Me Rosh. Bereshis is two words, which is Akol Me Ha'esh, Hu Yosoid, right? So the idea of Esh, Borash, he created Esh at the beginning. Achar Shis, after Shis, Kumoi Amin Shis in Daniel. Shem Shesh Ktsavos, and Misoiz Bechol Guf. There's six points in every spectrum, right? There's XYZ axis in two directions. He says, and of course, the idea of the, the idea of each of the words in the postal of is, is corresponding to all the letters in the alphabet. And there's seven in the first the first postal, like the seven kings, or like the seven stars in the heavens, or um, the constellations. And there's 28 letters in the first postal, like the general movement of the moon, and the number of times, ace, 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 in Kohelis and Perigimel. The beginning of separation is the base, and the end is the mem. Like the, the, the extended name of Hashem on Yom Kippur. And he says, and there, that's why the Torah starts with Bereshis and ends with the word Yisrael, the end of Devarim, because the whole point of the Torah was to end with Yisrael, and that's getting to the point. And says there, Ibn Ezra, after all this, he says, Soif Tavar, Ainli Drash Soif. He says, I could go on and on and on, and I could get more Kabbalistic, and I could go more Midrashic, and it's just going to get more and more and more. Says the Ebenezer, and it's not to dismiss these ideas, but the Ebenezer says we must have a starting point where we're actually looking at the text itself. Yes, Shalom. So it's a good question. It may be that he's addressing Rashi and those Udi'ime. Right? It's interesting. Most people say that Rashi is the Mephorosh Apshat. It's actually not exactly true. Rashi is really, most of Rashi is usually Chazal Medrash. Most of Rashi, Rashi will occasionally say, right, so occasionally Rashi will say, Davar, Davor al Ofanov, he wants to find a way that works with the progression of the Mikra. But most of the time you can rely on the fact that Rashi has essentially, um, has essentially diluted, not diluted, but essentially uh, produced, distilled, thank you, that's the correct word, distilled, all of the Midrashic history into one specific drop, and he's giving you the greatest interpretation of Midrash on the Pasuk or the Chazal, which is fascinating. The Ibn Ezra is not going in that direction. Do you notice that he says that they, they're closer to the Nakuda, they're closer to the point, but he still does not believe they're getting there as well. The, the, the extreme of this is going to be the Rashbam, we might get to him at a certain point. But here's what the, the, the Ibn Ezra himself says. Here is his approach. And by the way, he's going to be very euphemistic here, because there's some very complex issues that he's going to be dealing with in this next paragraph. And this is where the Ibn Ezra really lives himself. Here's how it goes. Haderach HaChamishis, the fifth way, he says, Mius Musar Musad Bipirusha Alia Ishis, which I myself and my personal Pirush is built on. is the straight one in my eyes, Nochach Pene Hashem in front of Hashem. So he does this with the humility of interpreting in front of Hashem. Ashemimenu Levadoi Ira, to whom he, he alone I fear, meaning to say, and not other people who will criticize me. I will not try to find my own way or try to misinterpret the Torah. And I'll try to find the explanation of every letter with all my strength. 
I will try to start off understanding the Torah on its own principles. In order to understand it, you go back to the first word, which will give you the explanation, the definition of that word. You go back to the first time example, the word Shamaim is used, and that will be what the word Shamaim means in the rest of Tanakh, because it's defined itself on its own terms. He then goes on to exclude the, just the next few lines, we're going to skip for a moment, where he basically says that he's not going to pay too much attention to Molei Vachaser. There's an extra Vav. An extra Aleph, where there, where there are extra things where he says, well, Drash spends a lot of time on. He's not going to go in this direction. The Radak also says similar things in his Pirush as well. It, he doesn't, doesn't put too much focus on this, which, by the way, is a, is a, a cloudy area. We should be very careful about, about this. I'll uh, come back to it in a moment. We're going to go to the next bracket, where in line 16 he says, aramis tirgum emes. He says, when you look at the, the Tirgum, the Aramaic translation, it is truthful. And it, it, it interprets everything which is hidden. And even if he sometimes runs after the Midrashim, he knew that they came from greater roots. He wanted to add extra reasons to keep because the, pshuta, the, the basic explanation everybody needs to be able to understand. And you're going to skip the example he gives. He says, The drash can never leave the pshat itself, which is the actual specific interpretation of the text. Yes, there are 70 facets to the Torah. Very important line. If you're going to have two interpretations of the same text, and it is in the realm of halacha, it is in the realm of halacha, which is mishpatim v'chukim, that's what he's saying, and one reason is my logic, and the other reason is the, 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 the chazal, who say this is the way to interpret it, what's he always going to do? He will always yield to chazal when it comes to mishpatim v'chukim. What by inference is he saying? Yes, that when it comes to levels which do not govern normative action, do not govern halacha, in that case, he may not yield to the Midrash. Just to understand what he's saying over here. This is a very controversial point that he's saying. He says, V'chalila, chalila, milisarev im tzidoikim, ha'imrim kiamatikim, makcheshes ha'kosu v'diktu kiaduktukim. Chas v'shon, to ever say chazal, misinterpret the pasuk of the, the pasuk itself, Let's see what this looks like for, for a brief moment to understand the complexity and the danger of the Ibn Ezra at the same time. Okay, so what he's saying is, is that the starting point is the text itself, language and logic with deference to Chazal. That's the way he's kind of this balance that he's living in. Let's just try to see a few examples of, um, of what he's saying. There's many, 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 many. Um, let's take a look at over here. The, he, in source 4, go back a few pages, and, uh, it's on page 3. He says, when talking about the Mishkan, he says, He talks about how they, were, they used the, all these different, different components to make the Mishkan. One of them was Atzei Shittim, was cedar wood. He says, um, Acacia wood, I'm sorry. He says, Atzei Shittim, Yesh he says in source 5, um, so he says, uh, so he's not, not to arm, I'm sorry. 
that Moshe Yaakov Avinu planted them in Egypt, and Israel brought out the wood with them. Because where do you get acacia wood in the, in the desert, in the Sinai Peninsula, exactly? So the point is, I know that Yaakov Avinu planted them, this is the Midrash, and Ariel took them out. And he gives a passage which says, he says, wait a second. What need did he have to plant them? And what need did they have to take them out at that point in time? Did they know that they were going to be making this tabernacle in the Mishkan? In the, in the, in the desert? He says, wait a second. The Egyptians, the, the, what they signed on to, the agreement they signed on to is a three-day journey in the desert, right? That's what they were doing, right? <laughs> so, so why the logs? Right, and then, right, why, why are you taking out these large building, building trees? Why did you take those with you exactly? You're right. You know, that's, that's not necessary for your little festival in the desert, folks. Why are we lending to you if, we if you think you're not going to come back? How could you explain this? So what's our evidence doing over here? He quotes the Medrash. And he says the Medrash doesn't seem to make sense, logically speaking. Why, how could they be extracting such large beams going to the desert with the, ex with, with the excuse of saying that they're, making, that they're just doing a three-day festival? The Egyptians would never let them go. So, in Kabbalah, and listen to what he says. If this Midrash is what he calls a Kabbalah. What's the word Kabbalah mean in this context? If there's an Asara, meaning, if Chazal have a oral tradition, generation to generation, from generation to generation, all the way back to Mitzrayim, or at least Sinai, that this is what in fact happened. He says, I will yield my logic right now. I'll put my hat on the ground. That is correct. That is exactly what happened. He says, But if Chazal are not reporting a Mitzrayim, they are interpreting, they're saying this is likely what happened. I would humbly suggest another way of interpreting this. There was in fact a forest near Sinai of acacia woods. That's equally remarkable, in so, Okay, so you can you can you can you can say that. But the point is it says that it says even Ezra. It doesn't make sense that they were taking it out. It must be they found it there. How do they make the sukkus in the desert in the first place? What material are they using? There must have been some sort of forest. If there was a forest there, then that's probably the forest they used to create the Mishkan. As opposed to saying this Medrash, as an example. Another example. Just a that's very clear. Because before he validated the Medrash by questioning the Medrash and logic, he's really extracting Medrashim from the realm of Medrash No, no, no. So what he's saying is like this, just to be clear. What the Ibn Ezra is saying is a very specific thing. He says, in the Midrash, there are two ways the Midrash could have come to being. One way is Misara, and one way is Svara, is, is the logical interpretation. If it was Misara, then yes, I will always yield to it in the realm of Machshava, not in the realm of Halach. We'll see Halach in a second. But when it comes to, when it comes to this, if it's Masorah, I will yield. If it's Svara, says the Ezra, I have a seat at the table. That's, that's what he's saying as well. And I will suggest this, which is 
very, very, this is ground shattering. Another example is, uh, of this is, uh, take a look at this. What was that? So that's what he says. I don't know. He says, I humbly will say, Ibn Kabbalahi, Nakabel. And here's another example. In the Akeda, here, take a look in source six. Voracious Chavbez, he quotes, How old was Yitzchak exactly? Our rabbi has taught us, We all know this, we've taught this. He's 37 years old. He says, Again, if Chazal are giving us a Masorah, and that's exactly how old he was, he says, I have, I have no arguments. He says, however, He says, but from pure logic, it doesn't, it doesn't work. He says, Then the major test shouldn't be for Abraham, it should be for Isaac, it should be for Yitzchak, because he was a grown man. He says, And the Torah doesn't say, I told your daddy, I said that about Avraham. There are those who say he was a youngster, five years old. That's not possible. Why? He carried the wood. How can a five-year-old carry the wood for the, the sacrifice? He says logic would dictate. He was probably a young teenager, 13 years old. His father was still hiding it at this point. He was still somewhat under his father's control. So he listened, but he was strong enough to carry the wood. That's what the Ibn Ezra said. What do you see over here? The Ibn Ezra again is taking a look. What's the dictating principle according to the Ibn Ezra? Is logic. And therefore he says, this is what I think. But if Chazal are saying the correct, if Chazal not the correct, if Chazal have the tradition, then I'll yield to that. Now, let's get into the realm of halacha. This is all machshava, meaning to say, how old Yitzchak is, and where they got the wood from, really doesn't change, so to speak, any halacha itself. But, what about the realm of halacha? So here's an example where the pasuk may be, the logic of the pasuk may be against halacha. Let's take an example. Um, in source 7. This is, this is in, in Parashas Mishpatim. Chof Aleph Vav. Boom, he gets, he gets old, right? The slave wants to stay. He gets, he gets a nice pierced ear. And he's a servant. Le'olam. What's le'olam mean? So, so we know Chazal tell us, based on the stereo, it means until the Yovel, which could be next year, depending on when the Yovel is. Right? So, but that doesn't sound like the logic of the Pasuk. So now what's the Ibrahim going to do, right? He was just telling us that the Pasuk has to dictate the principles of logic, right? So here's what he says. Listen to this. And you can see how he changes now. In source 8. The word olam doesn't mean forever. It means time in general. A long time, says the Ibn Ezra, is what's being referred to here. What's he doing? What's Ibn Ezra doing here? He is essentially submitting to Halacha. And he's trying to show us how the logic of the Pasuk will now kowtow to the Halacha. He's not playing games over here. By the way, the Rashbam... Who, in a real, who separates himself from Allah completely. He says the realm of Pshad and Allah will say, mamash, And he believes the two are not in contradiction. Ibn Ezra over here says, no, it has to. The logic of the Pasuk has to converge with Allah. Another example in the, the Pasuk, Ayin Tachas Ayin, Shein Tachas Shein. When a person will, will, let's say, destroy another person, a, bo- a bodily organ of another person, they have to pay back. It sounds like from the, the interpretation of the Pasuk that it means 
Take out their eye, take off their hand, right? And Chazal tell us that what it means is Kesef, money. So says the Ibn Ezra in source 10. How can you, you know, like, so let's say a person takes away another person's, a third of that person's eyesight. <laughs> so how do exactly do you, you know, do you reinforce that on the other side? Doesn't make sense, right? corroborating what Chazal was saying is, he's saying logic arrives at the same principles, which is it can must be cast if it can't be literal and can't be um, specifically as the Torah describes it. So what the Ibn Ezra has done for us is this is the, so to speak, one of the underlying principles of the Ibn Ezra. When it comes to the realm of Alaza, always Chazal. When it comes to the realm of Machshava, I will now divide between Kabbalah and Svara. If it's Kabbalah, Nakabel, no question. If it's Svara, I would submit that there's another logical interpretation. And we could argue about that logical interpretation. Generally speaking, this is not the way that most of the Mepharshim on the Torah operate. The Ibn Ezra is in general seen as an outlier in this respect. And what's interesting is, is that modern day academics today use the Ibn Ezra as the platform for further discussion. So they say, they'll say the same thing. They'll forget the, 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 the term, Ima Kabbalah, Hina Kabel. <laughs> we don't need that anymore because after all, we're... All you know, advanced human beings, and uh, and they'll say, well, this is what we think, right? We can we can assume that this is what really happened, and the flood didn't really occur, and all these, you know, and they push it to the further the furthest extreme. Um, so just as important, I, I was discussing this. This I struggled with many many years ago when I was when I was uh, learning about these things, and um, I once went over to our mayor Tversky, and I said, like, you know, how do we, how does this work, you know? Um, and he says, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, the second grader says, you know, because the, the biomedical engineer has suggested a principle based on their logic, that the second grader can also say, you know what, based on my advanced, my advanced curriculum, which I've got at school, I'm going to also make a suggestion. So Rautersky says, is the second grader does not have a seat at the table. Right? And we are the second graders in terms of perspective, in terms of this. We, we do not have the right to come along and say, we can suggest in the face of Chazal, we need to have a hook to hold our hats. There needs to be something. You can't just be suggesting it out of thin air, as the Ibn Ezra does. Also to note that the Ibn Ezra had the requisite respect for Chazal, which is lacking very much in most academic research today. But it is important to notice that there is a debate in general, is, was the Ibn Ezra's approach closed out of Jewish Masorah, which many would say, yes, we don't have the right to do this anymore, or yes, but he himself was very much included. Nobody rejects the Ibn Ezra himself. As an example, when the Ramban, in his Akdama to, um, to the Torah, talks about the Ibn Ezra, the way he says, he says, um, he quotes Rashi, who says he's going to have the crown to, and he says, Rabbi Avraham ben Ezra, which means, I'm going to rebuke him openly, and I'm going to love him quietly. Right, that's the way the Ramban says. Meaning the Ramban says, and by the way, that's what the Ramban does. He usually starts like this. He says, here's what the Pasuk says. Here's what Rashi says. Fantastic. Here's what Ibn Ezra says. He's completely wrong and this is why. And now let's carry on. And that's usually the way the Ramban starts his spiritual. And then the Ramban synthesizes everything. 
So the, the Ibn Ezra is a very respected individual and is one of the, the foremost Mepharshim. His approach is, is something, something which, is, which, is, uh, which is, um, is something which is worthwhile thinking about, but is also questionable. I will end with one last thing I think is important. I don't want to overlook one aspect of the Ibn Ezra as well, which is very important to know, and that the Ibn Ezra does talk about things which are very cloudy in terms of authorship, and it should be known, and, um, and uh, we're not going to get into that at all, where Ibn Ezra, on the one hand, will def- defend vociferously <coughs> any abrogations to the Torah itself, as we saw by the Meshuggah, as an example, but there's certain soydos that he talks about which are more complex about certain psukim, and, when, when, and who wrote them, Moshe Yashur at the end, and complicated things at the end, which is a much more complex parish in of itself. We do not have the bandwidth or space to deal with this. What our focus today was simply, what is the starting point for interpretation of the Torah itself, and how the Ibn Ezra came to do what he's doing. This might give us an opportunity, the next time we learn the Ibn Ezra, to see from where he comes. Thank you very much for taking the time.